I am finishing the month of April, and I don't know that that's one or more, one more or two more Tuesdays after this. Is it two or one? But in any case, I'm not going to be. I I was already not going to be giving classes in May because I'm traveling, but now I'm actually also going to be gone June and July, because I'm going to go uh, into a more remote location and work on writing, because it hasn't really been possible for me to do it here, because I have too many fun distractions. So after April is done, actually I'll take a three-month hiatus from these classes as it turns out, which is a bit of a surprise, but there you have it. I've been contemplating this for some time and it just all of a sudden popped together. Okay. Yep, I will. Thank you. I'm not capable so far. I need, I need a concentrated period of work to get launched. So, we skipped a week. Did we skip a week? Yeah. So probably nobody's carrying any burning questions, correct? All right. Probably nobody remembers what happened. Though. So, well, look, there is a burning question. <laughs> okay. I miss... I underestimated you. Mm-hmm. One of the things I remember and liked was when Swami said, you are what you aspire to. Right. And I thought, oh, wow, that... That just feels so wonderful. You know, that behind that is the, is, the, is the implications of the fact that this world is a flow of energy rather than fixed material objects. So when you begin, you know, be implied behind that is that there is no such thing as a, a fixed moment because all we are is an energy pattern. That energy pattern is always shifting. So to grab any arbitrary point and say, this is who I am, even that statement, already the energy is moving somewhere else. So there is no, it's not merely you're being kind, it's you're just being realistic. All that you are is where you're going, really. That's why everything in future will improve if you're making the right spiritual effort now. Uh-huh. One. Um, just a comment on Swamiji, because I was catching up reading in conversations, mm-hmm. and where he... Can you? I can't tell that this is on. It is okay. Uh, where he was a young man, but Master put him in charge of the monks. Yeah. And of course, a lot of the men had been there for a long time, and nothing much had been done. But he just went ahead, and I thought that was just so courageous. Well, there's a lot of things about Swami's life that are just there, and then you only really think about it later. You realize just sort of what the actual context was. Because you'll hear him say it many times, and then Master put me in charge of the monks. And then I think, well, you know, he was only there three and a half years. When did that happen? He'd only been there really a few months, less than a year, I think, when he did it. And it wasn't, it wasn't exactly that men had been there for a long time because there weren't that many men who, were, who stayed that long. <clears throat> but many of them were older than he. He was 22. They were in their 40s, some of them. And you know, there's a big difference. And... Swami was boyish, seeming, just because of he was slender and um, the way he was. That's one, among the reasons Master had him grow a beard, was to give him, try to give him a little more gravitas. <laughs> so, uh, give him more character, Master said. Swami said, make me look like a character is what it was. <laughs> All right. Number 232. Do not be anxious if you don't have meditated, meditative experiences. The path to God, Master said, is not a circus. Don't even be anxious about such fruits of meditation as inner joy and peace. This is quite a statement. Everything will come in God's time, 
Meanwhile, consider meditation too as a form of karma yoga action without desire for the fruits of action. That's really very interesting, isn't it? Meditate above all to please God, not yourself. Every sincere effort is registered in the divine consciousness. Your duty as a devotee is to accept whatever he sends you, or for that matter, whatever he doesn't send you. Um, God alone knows what past karma keeps you from perceiving him right now. He may want you to finish up your karma in this life before he gives you eternal bliss in him. It's extremely important. You know, that uh, I've referred at different times to this article that appeared in Yoga Journal back in the 70s when all of this was just starting. And I always remembered it because the heading of the article, the headline was The Dark Side of Meditation. <laughs> and the dark side of meditation was that stressed, type A, competitive people were the ones who tried to meditate because they needed a way to relax. And then it became for them just one more um, type A, stress-oriented um, activity in which they had to desperately try for eternal perfection, <laughs> which was really difficult to achieve. And I mean, it, it was, it was a, I, you know, it was, seemed like such a ridiculous theme, but it wasn't actually. And I've observed, I mean, I, I have acquaintances actually who have had to step away from their spiritual practices because, in fact, their being so goal-oriented, they just simply did not know how to meditate. They didn't know how to meditate without trying to achieve something and to constantly measure it, and ended up in such a state of confusion. And the other way that that works is not just perfectionist people trying to be perfectionist, but insecure people always feeling that they're not measuring up. When I had a, a meditation one class that I taught once, well, I taught the beginning meditation class for a long time, for many years, but one of the class groups I had, after the first, the second week, when everybody had tried to meditate and they all came, everybody, the class was very talkative, which not all beginning meditation classes are, but somehow the ice broke and they started telling me. And every person had some reason why their meditation had been really difficult, and everybody had a different reason. And the reasons for some were, as soon as I start meditating, I feel so sad, I start crying. As soon as I start meditating, I find that I get so unreasonably angry. Someone said, I get so hungry. <laughs> another one, just their body hurt. You know, another became just frantically restless, just desperate to get away from the quiet. And another one said, as soon as I start meditating, I'm certain I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> and then my whole meditation is anxiety that I'm not doing it right. Of course... What I had to explain to them, which is important, is meditation has not created any of these states of consciousness. It's that when you stop distracting yourself, you'll find a lot of times what your underlying vibration actually is. And I often say to people, what disturbs your meditation is often the whole point of your meditation. Because what you're finding is what's roiling around inside of you. Most of the time we're too distracted to actually know we're being absolutely run by those unconscious vibrations. But we're so busy being run by them that we don't know that they're behind us. And one of them is, I'm not getting anything from this, it's not really working. And everybody, or almost everybody, finds meditation more challenging than they expect it to be. And almost everybody 
does not have what they think they're supposed to have. So what Master's saying here is probably one of the single most important things about meditation is that you have to have the right attitude toward it. This is why Swamiji's teaching over all the years was so much about right attitude. And he would talk about meditation, but he, he never rarely really sort of investigated how our meditation was doing, and we never gave him reports, and he never asked for reports. He was always trying to cultivate in us the right attitude. And because he knew if we had the right attitude, absolutely everything else would follow. And as was demonstrated in our community by some just really startling, sterling examples of no matter how many hours you meditate, if you have the wrong attitude about what you're doing, in the end, you not only get nothing, you, you blow off the path. Because it just, it, it has to be that way. So it's, it's really hard for people to just relax. And why are you meditating? Because also, the whole point of meditation is self-forgetfulness. Not, not, you know, you're, just, you're just supposed to forget yourself, overcome self-concern. That's what you're trying to do. So if we're meditating with a constant evaluation of how well it's going, far from re- relinqu- releasing us from self-concern, meditation, that's just like the dark side, becomes one more way in which, oh, you know, either we become very um, proud because look how well it's going and look how many visions I'm having, and how many hours I put in, and aren't I really good at this? Or we become discouraged because look at all the visions I'm not having, and what an effort this is. And either way, what difference does it make? I was talking to someone recently about tests and trials in life, and it's not really, it's sort of like somebody was asking me something about that, and my response was not, Oh, it's so difficult, you have to persevere. Oh, it's so easy, you just give it to God. My answer was, what choice do we have? Because that really is the question. What choice do we have? If, if we are serious about the spiritual path and life hands us whatever it hands us, you know, it's, there's, no, there's no great heroism in just soldiering on. What choice do we have? It's really like, do we just lie down on the battlefield and be riddled with bullets and then just have to start all over again? I mean, you just keep crawling forward. It just doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter whether you're heroic or terrible. You just have to keep going. And with our meditations, too, as Sister Gyanamata put it so perfectly, she said, her words were, we make too much of feeling, people, you, make too much of feeling, even granting that the right kind of feelings are, I think she even used the word desirable, you know, like peace and calmness, that's a good thing, isn't it? Even granting that, she said, just pay no attention to how you feel. Just keep going. Because what choice do you have? See, there's this whole thought in our mind that if I get what I want, or if I don't get what I want, that somehow that's relevant to what I do next. (laughs) And we have this conviction that we have to evaluate it and make decisions based on what we're experiencing. Now, do you understand? I'm, I'm teasing a little, but not much. So your meditation is going great. Well, that certainly, you know, is an incentive to keep going. Your meditation is going terrible. So what are you going to do? Quit? And then just have to start all over at some point? How will that serve you? 
And, and this is how you develop the attitude of non-attachment. It's not that you're not grateful. But again, as he also says, you don't know what you're working out. Swami, Master said to Swamiji, Swami said he had trouble going breathless. Master said, because, that's because you used to talk a lot. And then Master sort of shrugged and said to Swami, oh well, you were happy in that. <laughs> but now it caught up with him. And, and Swami also writes, either in this section or elsewhere, he says that he had very, you know, he, he was not given, had, was never given consistent visions or consistent, he, even, I, saw, I know it was in a recording I saw, he said he has seen the spiritual eye, but not all the time. And he said, and Master said, now how does the balance, this work? I don't know. That's because in the past he had a lot of doubts. And because of those doubts, he doesn't have the experiences. How that exactly works, you know, I don't really know. But nonetheless, that's what he said. But Swami also gave up a, more, a deeper meaning, which is, he said, if he could have meditated the way he would have liked to have been able to meditate, he would never have done any work at all. Because why would he have bothered? It was, it was because the, the certain depth of meditation, he said, was withheld from him. He was compelled. And that was, that's the same story I think I mentioned about Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. Ramakrishna said to Vivekananda, I'm going to take the key away from you because you have something to do and if you have it, you're not going to do any of that. So Swami's life was certainly like that until the very end, at which point it's sort of like all the gates opened because he was done. And he still plowed on and did some wonderful things in the last virtually months of his life, but still it was more open to him. But, but the, the interrelationship of different kind of karmas is, I think is far more subtle than we know. Like you can't go breathless because you used to talk a lot. You don't, you don't have visions because you used to have a lot of doubts. I, you know, what is exactly? And then Swami throws in, and it might be in this book, that his friend Daniel Boone had just, you know, experiences after experiences. He had visions. He went into ecstatic states. He had days in which he couldn't feel his body. And Swami's just plodding along with nothing happening. And Boone is having all this stuff happen to him. But uh, Boone eventually, his, his worldly karma, as we talked about a few weeks ago, took him off the path. And Swami realized later that Master was, was giving him all those experiences in the hope of trying to hold him. Because he saw that Boone was uh, terribly threatened by his worldly karma, which eventually took him off the path. But Swami never wavered and never had those kinds of experiences. But it confused Swamiji when he was beginning. Because he just, he, you know, the same thought. Why am I so inadequate? Yeah. Was Boone the devotee that uh, Yogananda said, if you leave now, it'll be 200 lifetimes until you get back to this point? That's a very good question. Boone was the one we talked about who became a libertine and Master said it would have been better if he had married. I don't know if it was 200. It might have been. Do you think it was him? I just read one of uh, Swami's yeah. talks recently. And yeah, I remember he said that. It, yeah. it might he didn't have been. say Boone. I, I, I don't know, actually. That's a very good question. It might have been. I know that uh, Swami saw the man later and was heartbroken because what had happened is that because uh, Boone had strayed so far from the straight and narrow that he'd been on, he basically gave up and 
kind of turned even more toward a dissolute life, figuring he was lost anyway, and he just went all the way. So, so he, he ended his life with a deep sense of having given up and failed, which is far worse than having left the ashram and gone off to be dissolute. You just go off and be dissolute for a while, but you still know that eventually you're going back. But he allowed his failure to become his self-definition. And see, these are all so subtle. Everybody makes big mistakes. Everybody makes big mistakes. Everybody makes big mistakes. Is that clear? Did I say that clearly enough? Everybody. Swami would stand up there and talk to us. I mean, you all heard him say this. These are the kinds of things like you think about it later. And the whole story when he was a disciple of Shankaracharya and Tara was his brother and he, after the master died, this is Tara's explanation, posthumous explanation of why she was so against him, is that she was still living in the incarnation in which after the master died, I realized when I read it more carefully, Swami Kriyananda began to doubt, as in that lifetime, began to doubt the wisdom of the teacher and actually broke the ashram, took a group off. And she, as his younger brother in that life, felt, felt that he was so, such a traitor to the guru's work. And Swami will talk about this. He'll talk about, you know, the, this treachery and he'll talk about having been very advanced and then arguing with his guru. These are the things, doubts then arguing with his guru and falling from that state. And he talks about the lifetime that Bhrigu told him about, where he um, abandoned his wife to live in the ashram, and then she came and wanted to join him in the ashram, and he refused to allow her to join him, and she, he sent her back home. And then from that point, he felt this dissonance in his sadhana, because as a good spiritual woman, wanting, and you, he had a responsibility to her, and it wasn't right, apparently, for him not to allow her to stay. And then he went back and tried to make it up to her, but she had died. I mean, you know, these are... Now think about that. If that was your life, any of those lives, and you you walked through that, you, you doubted your guru's teaching, you broke up his ashram, you misled a whole group of people. I mean, those are many days and nights of anguishing remorse. These are not things at all that you just laugh off in the moment, if, if you imagine it. And yet Swami would just tell the stories just so casually because it wasn't him anymore and he knew it. It just, it just was gone and that was the way it was. So the, 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 the straying from the ideal of Dharma is inevitable. And so it isn't so much that you stray, it's what you do afterwards. It's what you do when you realize the mistake and how much courage you have at that point to turn back and how quickly you do. Yes? Last comment on that reading. Um, Yogananda said if he had come back, because after he strayed and came back and then cried, you know, and they cried Mm -hmm. together, if he'd come back at that point, it would only been seven or eight lifetimes. Really? Isn't that... Isn't that interesting? This is what Swami was saying. Yeah, but you see, that's the same thing. He became convinced that he was lost. And that, and that we talked about that in an earlier reading, then he was. But he wasn't until he became convinced that he was. It wasn't that... I mean, Ju, look at Judas. I and mean, Judas is about as bad as it gets. But eventually, he just was over it. But it was interesting because... Master tells that, that he was Ramakrishna's disciple, that Jesus sent him back to Ramakrishna to take care of him. 
and he still had a little bit of attachment to money. I mean, it was like, it's like a lingering thing. And then the other disciples were teasing him about it. And Ramakrishna said, leave him alone. He suffered enough for that. He didn't explain it, or at least you don't know that he did. But he protected the disciple. But he still had, you know, that, just that lingering remorse or inclination that had led him into so much trouble. The, the worldliness, the thought, money, power, all of that. But it's all very subtle. It's not at all the simple black and white story that we think it is. I certainly find the hardest part of any mistake I make <clears throat> is letting go of it. Just, I mean, the consequences, the, the consequences are what they are. You mess up, you lose friends, you're embarrassed, uh, you cause, well, Swami said to me once, <laughs> whenever your ego gets involved, Asha, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> you know, so you make terrible decisions and then a whole bunch of other stuff happens after that. But all of that is never as bad as that last part when you have to cut the tie with your own limitations. But that's the single most important part. That's why that story of Haridas, the Satu Haridas, who left his ashram to go live with a woman, left all his disciples. He was, you know, he was a, a he had cities. He was a great yogi. He had all ashram of disciples, and he was he became enamored of a, a woman, as it's described, and he went off to live with the woman for a while. And then he realized, whoa, this was so not what I should have done, and he just came back to his ashram. And his disciples took him back, which is also notable because. They understood, too, merely because he had that karma to work out didn't in any way uh, uh, diminish his spiritual greatness. It was just a piece of karma that had to be run through. And, and when we understand it like that, about ourselves, too, it's only as bad as we make it. Otherwise, it's just oops. I mean, everything is just oops. That was a bad plan. Okay, so he says, But a God alone knows what past karma keeps you from perceiving him right now. That's an interesting part of it too. You just don't, we just don't know what our own karma is. The more I try to figure it out, the less I know. That's the only thing. I've just become stupider and stupider as I grow older, and it's just, it works. It works better than the other system. <laughs> just like, who knows? I, I, I remember it was a different question, but... The eloquent gesture of Swamiji when I asked him some obscure question about Babaji in the astral world, and he went, he just put his hands up and shrugged his shoulders like that, and they went back to eating his breakfast. I mean, it's like, I don't know. And a lot of times it's just like, especially about oneself, how do you know? But the good news is, what we think about ourselves is, has so little to do with who we actually are. It just makes so little difference. Our own opinions are so tiny. God alone knows what karma we're working out. And so you just kind of, well, faith, trust, all those really big words on the biggest level. That's why uh, when Swamiji complimented me or, or, or commended me, whatever the word was, when he was saying positive things about people and he didn't seem to notice that I was in the room and I asserted myself because I thought this was a moment and I wanted to get in front of him, and then he looked at me, you know, it was too transparent. He had to do something. He said, Asha, you're very sincere. And I just felt like that was the most, you know, 
damning with faint praise I'd ever heard. And it actually got me kind of depressed because, you know, everybody else had been... I mean, it wasn't like he was... He never flattered people. But it was just a moment when he was commending people for something. And I didn't feel like... I felt like I'd backed him into a corner and he had to say something that wasn't a complete lie. So he said that to me. <laughs> and uh, I was really depressed about it. And uh, somehow... I don't think I brought it up, I think he brought it up. That I, somehow he could see that I was disturbed. And I just sort of, I told him that. I said, well, I just felt like, you know, you had so much trouble saying anything good about me. The only thing you could say was that I was sincere, which sounded so uh, consolation prize to me. But he, he got so serious. And that's when he said, Asha, sincerity is everything. Just like that with so much. Um, commitment. And then, I, you know, I had to think about that, and I've had to think about that ever since. Because it's sort of like Sister Gyanamata says this thing about the spiritual path, which I think is so powerful. She says it, this is what I took from what she said, so I'm not quoting her, but essentially what she said is, on the spiritual path, you, you have to be, well, she didn't use the word, but the popular word is authentic. You have to actually have a bedrock point where you have, where, where nothing can shake you. You have to have some point you can stand on as your definition of yourself and the spiritual path that is so uh, solid in your experience that nothing can knock you off of it. And I often say to people, you just need to keep diminishing and backing up until you're somewhere where you can stand. I mean, as an example... I believe that Master is a true guru. I believe that he can liberate all his disciples. I believe that I am his disciple. And so even if I am the last on the list, that's what I often say, the whole list, the whole cosmic list, I am the last name, I am on the list. (laughs) And therefore, because I believe in the Master's power, it doesn't make any difference. You know, then I don't have to be good at what I do. I don't have to be spectacular. I don't have to be about to be liberated, I'm just on the list. Okay, so that that can be your bedrock, that you just stand there. And I actually, my bedrock is that I am very sincere. It's, It's my nature to be so. I'm not at all good at pretending something I don't feel. I've no, I'm, I'm, as a result, I'm not very diplomatic or tactful. I just forget to be. I'm just, I just am what I am. But my commitment to the spiritual path is 100% genuine. It's genuine. It doesn't mean that I'm any good at any part of it. But that's not what Swami said to me. He didn't say, you're a great soul and I've been waiting for you and I recognize you from past lives. You're nothing. He just said, you're very sincere. Oh, but sincerity is everything. Because if my commitment is genuine, if a person's commitment is genuine, well built on that also, is my faith in the spiritual path. And if my commitment to it is genuine, you know, I can be, I can have many ups and downs, but that's a bedrock point that I can always stand on. And and for me, this is part of the way I've always worked with my own mind. I always push things to the farthest point in one direction or another. And then, if I can accept that, then it's fine. I remember at a certain point, 30 years ago when things were happening 40 years ago in my life and I, I was really way insecure about where I was and what I was doing but I decided that 
I was a pretty nice person. <laughs> that, was, that became my bottom line. <laughs> I might not be a great soul. I might not really be using the blessings that life were giving me. I might squander all my talents. I might accomplish nothing. But I was still a pretty nice person. <laughs> and I actually even visualized my life review and having to face the masters and them pointing out all of my failures. And I would still be able to say, yeah, but I was a pretty nice person. <laughs> and it wasn't a joke. It was like, I'm going to go all the way back to the worst that I can imagine. I'm going to come to peace with the worst I can imagine. And then everything else is extra. You know, this is all this effort to take away, you know, tension, fear, self-concern. You know, th- these, are, these are humorously expressed and to the point of ridiculous, but enormously important. Here it is. I don't know what karma I'm working out. I don't know why. I do this, I do this, I do this, this doesn't happen, all these things that I want. I don't know why, but God knows. And maybe he wants me to work out all my karma. So maybe the life is a total dud until it's not. If you're sincere, if you have some bedrock point of sincerity, then you're always safe. That was Gyanamata's advice. Very, very powerful advice. And that's what he's suggesting here. That's Nishkam karma, you see. Somebody says, oh, you know, you're doing so well. What choice do I have? You know, give me an option. Like, show me somewhere where I can, like, ever get free without having to go through my own destiny. We've tried all that. I've tried it in many lifetimes. My father was a Virgo. God bless him. He was, I'm, I'm not. I'm really, like, so not. He was, he was so Virgo. And I read in Swami's, I guess it was, in, it was either in Swami's book or a different book about astrology. They're always trying to find some little point. And my dad, sometimes he would just drive me crazy. Just, you know, he would just try to find some little point. Now, what was, what was I going to say about that? Why was I thinking of that? Let's see. Now I've lost the thread about why I brought that up. So I'll have to just leave it. But it was a characteristic of his, of uh, focusing on the minutiae and missing the big picture. That was what I was going to say. I, I, would, I tended to have a sweep, a big picture, and he would, he would always try to anchor me on some detail. We didn't always have harmonious conversations as a result. <laughs> he thought I was a sloppy thinker. I thought he was impossible. <laughs> and then oh, later in his life, you know, this is, the, this is the positive side of what you think is not good. It's toward the end of his life. He, his, his mental acuity was diminished because of age, age-related. He didn't, well, he became, you know, dementia is too big a word because it wasn't that. But the acuity of his mind was greatly dulled. And then he forgot to be so picky about everything. <laughs> and he just became utterly dear. Because <laughs> he really was a very sweet man. It was just a bad habit. And when he couldn't do it anymore... He was just, he became himself more. It was a very, it was, it was really instructive to me also. And took away a lot of the fear of losing parts of your mind. Because your essential nature is still there. You know, and he, <laughs> my favorite story from those years was when the, he lived in this very nice care facility and they called me one day. The caregivers called me. They started the conversation by saying, we called poison control and it's fine. I said, oh, why did you call poison control? 
<laughs> and it turned out they had the dinner spread across the table and my father ate a lot of the flower arrangement <laughs> because it was in a bowl on the table like everything else. And so he ate a, a good bit of the flower arrangement before anybody noticed that he was serving himself off of the flower <laughs> arrangement. <laughs> I thought it was extremely funny. And when I began to laugh, they of course began to laugh too, which they had already done in private, but they had to be somber with me. <laughs> it was like, you just, all of that's very arbitrary. It's all bowls on the table. How would you know? He'd lost a sense of taste, you know. But if you're going to, you could be very upset about it. But on the other hand, Kamala uh, Silva, who also lost her mental acuity, for her too, she just went into this very blissful state so that at the end of her life, they, she was at Ananda for a while and then her family put her in some not-so-nice care facility in the East Bay. It was, it was kind of a grim place. But to her, everything was beautiful. You know, she, and she was sort of half in some other world with Master. She thought all the stuffed animals were, her, were living animals and they were all so sweet. And she thought the view out her window, which was a parking lot, somehow or another she saw these beautiful mountains. Everything was just wonderful to her because her essential nature was really blissful. She lost the discriminating intellect, but that's not always such a good friend. So there you have it. Okay, God knows what karma you're working out and he'll let you work it out. So, down to number 233, okay. I, Walter, tended perhaps toward over-enthusiasm in my meditations. The master once said to me, do not get excited or impatient. Go with slow speed. You will get there sooner if you go that way. I'm sure that expression, go with slow speed, was his creative adaptation of the common American expression, make haste slowly. One of my friends, Bella, who was Russian, you know, she spoke good English, but uh, the idioms are tricky. And I remember when she emphatically declared that she was absolutely against something happening and the only way it would happen was through my corpse. She said, I just, through my corpse? She meant over my dead body. <laughs> She'd gotten the essence of it. She was saying, I kept thinking of this project going through her corpse. <laughs> so Master adapted, go with slow speed, and you will get there sooner if you go that way. This is that, that weird balance. I mean, this is the same point, which is this um, adjustment that we have to make on the spiritual path, which is really tricky to make. Because in order to, even to come onto the spiritual path, you have to have a certain degree, you know, you have to have a spine, you have to have a certain determination, you have to have certain willpower. If you're just drifting through life, it won't even occur to you that this is maya. You'll just take the path of least resistance. <clears throat> so somewhere in the course of your incarnations, you have to develop this contrary force to the casual flow of life. I mean, you, we see people all around us who just go with the flow. I'm, I, I, I live in such a rarefied universe, and I have for so long, you know, with, when I see, I think it was actually uh, one of the U.S. senators, I, I watched a snippet of the confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court judge, and there was one of the senators, who's, who was a senior senator on this committee, and he was talking to the guy, 
And he made reference to his commitment to a certain sports team and his wife's commitment to that sports team. And God knows what point he was trying to make because it really was not a very intelligent point. But I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, you know, someone who has so much influence over the destiny of America, and he was an older man, actually has this deep commitment to some professional sports team that he he watches on television. And, you know, people that I love and respect who are deeply devoted to the path watch sports on television. So it's not even that. But it was just more like, don't you have any higher values than that? Haven't you seen anything beyond rooting for a sports team at your age and in your reality? But obviously he hadn't. The sound of his voice told you everything. But by the time you are creative and strong enough and courageous enough and have understood that I'm going to choose my own way in this world and not just be run by Maya, you, you, we have this certain habit of doing it our way. And, and it's, it's a very interesting transition to take all that willpower and then re, uh, redefine it, re-express it, so that same passion is now in cooperation rather than in cooperation with higher consciousness and goes beyond just the egoic self that has developed to the point where it can self-define and now that willpower becomes super conscious. And it's, it's, it's the edge that all of us, it's the edge that all of us are always working with. And Swami's talking about Master saying his over-enthusiasm but what he's also talking about is willpower has to be used first for attunement. And then when the attunement is there, the attunement meaning a sense of what God is trying to do, not merely a sense of what you think is a good idea. And it's not that they're even contradictory. It's partly just how you go about it. And it's, it's again, this is where Swami said that what Master talked about to the disciples was attunement. Because unless you have attunement, even the most intense practice won't take you there, take you anywhere. That's why Swami talked about Bernard, who had so much willpower, he could meditate you know, hours and hours. Swami talked about, I believe, in the path, he, he meditated for like two days. But in the end, Bernard went away. Because he was so accustomed to using his willpower, he didn't understand how to attune that willpower to this greater flow of energy. And so even with Swami, his, his Swami calls it over-enthusiasm, but it's also not being connected to what's trying to happen, to surrender. I don't, I mean, I don't know exactly how to say it. Because, you know, up, right up to the edge, it's the best possible quality you can have, to be strong and determined like that. I remember it so touchingly. I, w- I was told this story the other morning to some of you. Prakash, who's a, really a wonderful man at Ananda Village, who's now one of the Anaya Swami, he, he, he's a senior monk. He helps with a lot of the young monks there. He's a, probably my age or a little older. And there was a certain point that Swami's, the Crystal Hermitage, which now you come in a gate, you walk down all these concrete stairs, and it's all very well laid out. There's a... a whatever you uh, cloister walkway and but if you just think of the house where it's located and the hill above it for many years there was absolutely nothing in between 
it was just the wild hillside with this very small trail. And you couldn't, you had to park at the top and you had to walk, walk down that same hill, but it was just a, a trail through the forest. And um, Prakash looked at that at one point and decided Swami was getting older and he also thought it just wasn't, he, he wanted to help Swamiji out. And he made the decision that he would cut stairs into the hillside. And he cut um, sort of platform stairs and put a railroad tie or a, a big log at the front of each one to hold it because he was cutting the land like that. It was not a small job to cut a, a stair that two people could walk comfortably down because often Swami came with others and so he wanted one where Swami could walk side by side with someone all the way down the hill. And every day when, when Swami would go up or down that hill there was one more step. Just every day. And he just, every day, cut one more step until the steps went all the way up the hill. And I, I was so touched when Swami stood there once and just saw, you know, what was happening. And he turned to those of us who were with him and said, Master would have liked Prakash. You know, meaning that kind of willpower and determination. He, that, that was what it takes to find God. So it's not like attunement in any way diminishes your commitment or your energy. It just harmonizes it. So somehow Bernard's a capacity to meditate like that, but Swami describes it, I don't know where he describes it, maybe it was in here, about Bernard had a very weak body and many things wrong with it. And as long as he just followed Master, he was strong. But when he began to, people began to tell him that Master's working you too hard, you should take better care of yourself. And as soon as he started, he, and then he went away. So it's, all of those things are so much more important and going back to than any other thing you can measure. And it's very hard to measure, except, as Swami said once, by increasing joy and an increasing sense of security, increasing sense of faith, confidence, just confidence that God loves you, confidence that you'll get it right, don't worry. <laughs> It'll straighten itself out in time. Self-forgetfulness, that's the word. All right? Number two, three, four. The Master had to face innumerable financial difficulties in establishing his work in America. He never compromised, however. Never, for example, did he seek to attract a wealthy following by charging more for his classes, thereby excluding persons who couldn't afford them? Certain famous teachers had become wealthy by charging high prices for their lessons and attracting, therefore, a wealthy clientele. The master wasn't interested in wealth. He was interested in serving. He wanted everyone to benefit from what he had to give. Unfortunately, what this meant, as I said was that his financial worries were both constant and considerable. It's amazing when you really think about that. He was a self-realized master and he's always worried about how to pay the bills. One time he exclaimed with a sigh of regret, I've had many people say to me, if ever I get money, I'll give most of it to you. If ever they, however, if they ever had a sudden windfall, however, an inheritance perhaps, or a soaring return on a stock market investment, it was only rarely that they fulfilled their promise. Instead, what I find is that they actually became stingy. 
money is a trap. The more one has of it, the more he depends on it for his security. You know, we went, we've been through that in Ananda so many times. I can't tell you how many times people have come to us. Well, actually, it's not that many, but it's enough. I have this great business idea, and I'm going to open this company, and I'm going to give half the profits to Ananda, and I think this business is going to make millions of dollars, and you, I'm going to solve all of your problems. And almost always the business never gets off the ground. I mean, it just they have all these plans about what they're going to do and how they're going to give you, and either they never have the money, or just as Master said, when the money is there, then all of a sudden, elsewhere uh, Swami wrote, once you start depending on money for your security, there's never enough of it. Which I, I've, I've sort of had some experience with that recently, and I've, I've really, when you have nothing, and you're just depending on God, you're just depending on God, but when you have a little bit, you're always adding it up. <laughs> and when you add it up, it just never comes out to be quite enough. I remember when, at the end of my mother's life, I mean, this was slightly different, but she, she had been frugal, and, had, and my father had, at the end of his, of his life, kind of just oddly, he, he made quite a good income the last years of his life. And so they had enough. They had enough for what they needed to do. But my mother was always afraid, always. And I remember, I've never been good at the spreadsheets, I don't know how to do it, but with just a pencil, <laughs> I, I calculated out what they had in the bank. I calculated out what the return on it was. I calculated out how much they were spending. And I gave her this whole grid that showed that they could live just as they were living for another 20 years. And I can't tell you how many times I found my mother, you know, just looking at it like this. You know, and she'd follow it. I'd watch her follow it like this. I mean, there was nothing I could do. And I also knew, I mean, I didn't have any money, but I knew if I had to take care of them, I'd find a way to take care of them. You just have to do it. But uh, it's just that because you know, you know that nothing in the material world is really reliable because you just don't know what's going to happen. There was a novel that we read years ago at the beginning of The End of the World is Coming cycle, which was started really early because Yogananda was always telling that the great cataclysms were coming, so the end of the world was always, I think 1973 is the year, Swami would say. (laughs) I see all the signs. Um, So there was this uh, novel called Lucifer's Hammer. It probably exists still somewhere. And it was a, a, a cataclysmic event novel. And it was about a meteor that was going to hit the, the earth. And because in the novel everybody knew the meteor was coming, everybody knew that everything was going to happen and blow up. And so you had all these different characters in the book who all responded in different ways. You had the surfer who rode out and then rode the tsunami in. That was how he ended it. You know? And you had the survivalist, and you just had all the different people doing. But the book was actually a little subtle in certain ways because you saw that what happened to people really had very little to do with their plans. It just happened, had to do with karma. You know, the most well-prepared person was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and nothing worked out for him. And the person over here who had made no plans at all just managed to go like this. And it was, uh, now let's see, what would that have been related to? What did I just read? Oh, about money. And, but it was, I, I've never forgotten that novel. I read it in the early 70s. Because it did tell me how um, 
karma is everything. That one has to be responsible, but karma is everything. And, we, and I'm, I'm going to that part of it where Master says they actually become stingy because now they have money to rely on. So when they didn't have the money, it was easy to say, I just want to be a spiritual person. But once they saw the potential security of money, then the whole thing shifted to that, and they didn't have the courage anymore. That's, I mean, that's only one half of what's written here. So why don't we take a break, and then we'll go ahead and finish with that one. Having his deposition taken for all those horrible lawsuits. Um, they videotaped him. I mean, it was I mean, the oppositional lawyers who were so unpleasant. Uh, videotaped him and they kept bringing the camera closer and closer. And Swami just afterwards, he just laughed. He said, I've been in front of cameras, you know, for decades. It's just like I'm, somebody might be able to be made nervous by a camera. They were also hoping to push him into some kind of explosive rage and they would have the whole thing on camera. And he, he totally refused to cooperate with all the plans. <laughs> just uh, what a world we live in. Anyway, um, it's very disheartening and heartening simultaneously to know that Master had to struggle with money the whole time. You know, you just, and you think, we always talk about Rajasi and how wealthy Rajasi was, but you have, there's, there's a lot of exchanges of letters. It's in Durgamata's book, and also there, there are letters that exist. But Rajasi, you know, was a very successful businessman, but a businessman doesn't necessarily have, have all this money in the bank. He may have an enormous worth, but he's running a company. He has all these people involved. It's not like he can just pull money out all the time. And also, Swamiji said once that Rajasi was a businessman, and he, he, he wanted to use money to make money. He didn't want to just give money um, w- without an understanding from his point of view. At the same time, of course, Rajasi completely established Self-Realization Fellowship and willed them enough money and so on. It's, he, was, he was their Rajasi, which is how it sort of become its own word, which is the patron who makes it happen. But even despite that, even having, you know, a few, because there were a few people who followed him who were quite well, well to do, nonetheless, it was just the karma of the situation. He had to constantly, constantly think about it all the way through. And it, it, Swami Kriyananda, of course, had to also, he, had to, he built Ananda by himself for a long time and for many years. He was the only one who had a, one of the few, I should put it, who had a really comprehensive understanding of the financial necessities of it. I myself, for most of the years that I lived at the village with him, I never really had any understanding of money, per se. I, I was hardworking and I had a, a certain prosperity karma, is the only way I could say it. But I really contributed very little on a practical level to an understanding of what it took. And Master was always having to work with that. It's, to me, it's very important to understand that because we can also think that the mere fact that one has to struggle financially means that you're doing something wrong. And there's a certain false teaching that says spirituality means that you can manifest money. So the example of Master himself, who had to always... Be, be working hard and pushing. And the example, I was saying to someone about Swami Kriyananda last night in a program I was talking about, I said it wasn't so much that nothing challenging or difficult or, 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 or um, startling ever happened to Swami Kriyananda. Many things happened to him. It wasn't 
the fact that nothing happened to him. It's how he responded in the face of that. It's almost like it was necessary. It's necessary if a, if a spiritual individual who's there to teach never has any challenges, what do we learn from that? So it's necessary that they have a life experience like William the Conqueror or Ferdinand or Alfonso where they're, or, or Yogananda where he comes to this um, foreign country which is really alien to everything that he's bringing to it. He's a dark-skinned man at a time when segregation was the law. The movie Awake, that documentary, gave us more information about Yogananda's life than people had before, including when he was in Miami, and he was, uh, he, he was a, a, dark, a black man speaking to white audiences, as far as they were concerned, and they ran him out of town. They just wouldn't let him, they wouldn't let him speak. You know, it was segregation, and here he was, I mean, it, and they, they treated him very, very shabbily. But that, he had to face that. And in Washington, D.C., there's, there's this wonderful picture of all these uh, African-Americans, as they, they weren't called that, that Negroes. He started a whole society, a self-realization chapter for all the dark-skinned people because Washington was a segregated town. And it's a, it's a really gorgeous picture of all these really interesting people from that era. But of course, that was what Master was like. He wasn't a white man in terms of the way that was defined. And so he had many, many obstacles to overcome. And as he said himself, <clears throat> in India, they support the guru. In America, the guru supports the disciples. And, and what he was doing was such an innovation. And of course, he, pu- he pulled a lot of people out of their worldly lives. I mean, some of them, like Rajasi and Mr. Black and others, sort of stayed where they were, but many of them he pulled into his world. And then their uh, financial capacity was diminished. And he had to struggle with it constantly. And Swami Kriyananda had to struggle with it constantly. And uh, Master is the author of that famous phrase we often quote, every good, noble, or philanthropic enterprise sooner or later comes down to a matter of money. And it's just, you can have all the ideals you want. Sooner or later, you have to be able to generate the financial resources in order to make the thing happen. And that's the nature of this world. I wish it were different. And the nature of this world is such that people are much more willing to spend for cars and houses and vacations and shoes and handbags and just, I mean, an un, there's an unbelievable level of consumption that goes on that we, we are so accustomed to it that we don't, we don't even notice it. You don't even think about it. I think when it finally all comes to pieces, whenever that's going to happen, I think 1975 is the year. <laughs> we're going to just come out of it and think, what were we thinking? What were we thinking? Why did we really think we had to have all that? It's, comfort is nice, beauty is nice, refinement is nice. I was remembering, I put this in my book about Swami, Swami... I mean, we were, we were dirt poor, really, then. I mean, we were really poor. Um, and uh, somehow or another, we got hooked up to a, a, a military surplus auction. And Swami, we, we got a car for Swami, this big blue Chevrolet, for $75. And actually, the mechanic bought two of them, one for Swami to drive and one to cannibalize for parts. <laughs> 
So for $150, we had this car, and it was a spacious car with a big trunk, and it, you know, five of us could travel with Swami. We put all our luggage in. We loved the car. And they had painted over. It had been air, an Air Force car, and you could still see the word Air Force, so we called it Air Force One, <laughs> of course. And that was his car. But it was a, a clunker by any standard, except that it ran really well, and it was a great car. Um, and I remember Swami was... Uh, speaking in San Francisco, at that time they were beginning to have these, they were called Meeting of the Ways, and all the, it was the big era of all these different teachers were coming up, and it was the 70s, late 70s. And uh, there was a big uh, event in San Francisco, I don't remember where it was, but there was uh, a reception at somebody's house, I think in St. Francis Wood, or one of those really, really nice places. And I was there with Swami, and we came in, that car. We must have come in that Chevrolet. Yeah, we came in that Chevrolet. And it was a reception for all the teachers and our little group pulls up. We were a little bit late and we had trouble parking. And so we're going up and down the street. There were several Rolls Royces. There were all these Mercedes. There were Cadillacs. And this were all the spiritual teachers. And we drive up in this uh, Air Force One. And, uh, but interestingly, as we parked and then walked, Swami said, I have to get a new car. And he said, in India, they would respect me for driving this car. He said, in America, and he put the, used this phrase, where money is so easy to come by, they would think that there's something wrong with what I'm doing if I can't afford a car better than this. And uh, it, was, it was a very interesting statement, and he did. So then he went out and he, he bought a Ford. He picked out this car that looked nice, but wasn't really a fancy car, but had nice, a nice line. He very carefully chose it so that he could drive up in it, and your first impulse was, that's a nice car. When you looked closely at it, you would realize it wasn't a particularly prestigious car, but it didn't make the same impression. But that was just sort of the way it was. And, you know, Swami was utterly indifferent, and many of those spiritual teachers perhaps shouldn't have been driving around in Rolls Royces. <laughs> Might not have been the best idea, but you don't know who, um, who was driving them. I know uh, Brian and Lisa Powers, Bajrang and Lisa Powers, um, their business, when they, when they first came to Ananda, they actually came from here, they were antique dealers uh, at very high end level, antique. And, so he had, and among the things he had was a white Rolls Royce. <laughs> among the many things he had. And so uh, from time to time, you know, various of us would drive around in his white Rolls Royce. It was a little bit of a, a vintage, uh, just for fun. So it, it has happened at Ananda. <laughs> it was also fun because you just, you forget it, because you can't see it, you're just inside of it. But everybody would look at us when you would drive in it. And then I would, you know, trying to... Uh, and then I go, oh my goodness, that's what happens. You, you put out a statement like that and then you get all this attention. And if you're inclined to think you are your automobile and everybody's envying you or admiring you, then all of a sudden it, it makes you something special because you drive around in that car. But still, there was a, there's a nuance to it all. And Swamiji also, he compelled us to make Ananda more refined in uh, 1976. 76 or 7, after he finished writing The Path, he went for six months to India. 
and uh, a man named who was known as Suffering Moses, um, because that was the name of his shop in Kashmir. This was before Kashmir became so difficult to go, to visit. And he, uh, Suffering Moses, gave Swami a house for seclusion, and so he went up to Kashmir. And then it took a month for the house to be ready. And Suffering Moses had this this beautiful shop of handmade Kashmiri goods. And during that month, Swamiji became persuaded to buy a house full of carved Kashmiri furniture. And when you go to Crystal Hermitage now, that's the furniture, all that carved Kashmiri furniture. He bought that in 1976. And uh, I was on the receiving end, because I was a secretary at that point, of the necessity to uh, raise what was probably the sum of like, it was about four or $5,000, which was might have, I mean, it was a huge amount of money at that time, especially for us, to buy this carved furniture. You know, we were living in trailers and teepees, and he was going to buy this carved cashmere furniture. And he was, he had it all worked out. I have all the letters. You know, this is a dying art. Mr. Moses says that in another generation, they won't, because now you have to learn this as children, but now the children go to school and they don't learn this and no one wants to do this kind of work anymore. And he compared the price of this furniture, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, he buys the whole thing. We had no place to put it. I mean, there, was just, there wasn't even a building to put it in. Fortunately, soon after it arrived, we opened the ashram in San Francisco and we, had that, we were renting this house up in the, in the whatever that, Pacific Heights. So we had a place to put all that furniture. But for us, it was just shocking to have anything that nice. But Swami said, and it was very true, again, this is also America, he said, especially in America, he said, if, you're, if your environment is not refined, people will think that your ideas are not refined. And he said, we, we, don't, we don't want luxury, but we have to bring everything up to a certain level of refinement or else people won't understand what we're doing. And he's really right. If you look at Crystal Hermitage now, I mean, it's not at all luxurious. It's just nicely done. And all that cashmere furniture <laughs> looks really beautiful in there. But you, you, you feel this certain... The people who would make this place, you can feel the consciousness that would make a place like that. And when people came and it was just so awful, I mean, really awful. I thought it was wonderful, but it was really awful. Karen and David Gamow, um, they lived for several years in a teepee, which they still say was their favorite house of all time. And his parents came to visit. His parents were, um, I, I went, you know, game. They were, they were ready. They were up for it. And, so, and they sat on the orange crates and had dinner inside the teepee and all of that. And as she said, and for some reason, they kept reminiscing about the Depression. <laughs> And uh, because it was, that's what you thought of. For us, we'd come from privilege and we were happy to have simplicity. And we also, you know, money felt like it was easy to get, so it didn't feel like anything to not have it. It was always like you could easily get it. But it's all, it's all complicated. Look what Master did. Look at the, look at the places he got. Rajasi built him Encinitas, you know, a certain level. You go past that, it's not wholesome. So it's a very interesting balance that we all have to work with. Swami had to work a long time with us because we were, you know, collectively, we were we had, we sort of repudiated a lot of that. And, and it was hard for him to help us understand what the right balance was. And I wasn't until I knew him much later that I realized what a refined upbringing he had. 
I had, a, I had what I think is a very positive upbringing, but it was very intellectually focused. But his, his parents were really in the, they lived in Scarsdale, and they socialized with the very high strata in this country. He was a vice president of Standard Oil, his father. You know, he was, it was a, and then they lived abroad where you have, you can have a certain lifestyle. When I began to appreciate much later how refined Swami's taste was and how refined his upbringing had been, and I saw a picture of some event we had, like a Thanksgiving dinner or something, and I remember those times. I mean, I put on those dinners and we, you know, if you could have a, a paper napkin that was pink instead of white, it was just like, wow, what luxury. And there was an old mason jar with a, a daisy sort of stuck in it like this, you know. This was an attempt to set an elegant table. And I saw Swami sitting there looking perfectly happy. And I looked at what we'd put out for him and I remembered his parents' house and things like that. Not that he cared, but it's, you have to work on that. We were proud of our poverty, but he knew we had to go past it. But if you go too far past it, then you're somewhere else, if the money becomes money for its own sake. There's, a, reputedly, I think it was about Swami Shivananda, but I'm not sure, about some very well-known sadhu who kept his ashram on the verge of bankruptcy at all times. He would always do something to make sure that they never had any extra money. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, I don't know. We, pardon me, Ch- Ch- Shivananda, um, the way Ananda has worked is we've, we've sort of gradually brought the whole thing up and so we, um, we have nothing at a much higher level than we used to. <laughs> because our creativity is always just a little bit ahead of our resources. So we're always having to push it like that. And you know, if you don't, if you don't have financial pressure, oftentimes, Swami wrote about this in another context, but oftentimes your creativity wanes because uh, uh, the pressure of, of existence causes you to have to constantly be finding new ways. Oh, and, and the also you have to think, if you're a spiritual work and you're... you're viability depends on people's commitment to you, then you have to always be thinking about how to serve them. You know, it's just when we were very first starting this whole enterprise here, um, of which this is now the result, but we didn't start here, and that was just how we thought about it. It was we, people will, will support this work if this work is enormously valuable to them. And how is this work going to become enormously valuable to people? Well, it has to serve them. And so the thought wasn't, we need money from people. The thought was, people will support that, which is vital to their well-being. So it was a constant creative um, effort to, to make Ananda so um, inspiring that you really couldn't live without it. I mean, people pay for their own rent, they pay for their food, they pay for their cars, they pay for their children, because it, it means everything to them. And it's quite appropriate to support your temple, but you need to support your temple because it's food and shelter to you. And if it's not food and shelter to you, then those who are responsible for manifesting it need to do something to make it food and shelter. And, and, and that's the thought form that's always worked. And interestingly, 
with Swami Kriyananda, I, I think I'll just shut this. I also put this in the book I wrote about him. When he was, you know, he, he entered the ashram when he was 22. He was expelled when he was 36. So he, he never really had an adult life. You know, he became an adult in the context of being a monk in Self-Realization Fellowship. He had an allowance of, I think it was $15 a month. And everything he did, he did in the context of being a monk in that monastery. And of course, it was a work in itself. I myself, my whole life has been through Ananda. So everything I've done has been in the context of Ananda, which has supported me to do the work I'm doing. And that was where he was. 36, he's expelled. He's forbidden to ever set foot on any SRF property again or to contact any person who is involved in SRF. Of course, he has no other reality. He has no other friends. He has, he has nothing except his, his biological parents, which as it happened, he was in New York. They had just arrived in New York. He got in the backseat of their car and they, he drove with them to California and moved into the spare bedroom of their house. But he's there. He has nothing and no one. And he had to figure out what to do, and that's the story. But he never did anything except serve his guru's work. I mean, never. Every, every way he tried to survive and to generate income, he always did it through doing something that was also beneficial to uh, Master's work. He wrote books, he gave classes, he wrote songs, he gave concerts, um, he, he did lessons, he did radio shows, but it was always, how can I serve Master and I have to support myself? And the only, time, the only thing he ever did different, but then he, he, when I said, the only thing you ever did was you signed up to help train Peace Corps volunteers going to India. And that was the only sort of other thing. He said, yes, but I thought I was going to be able to teach them about India's spirituality. He said, it turned out that he wasn't. They weren't interested. So he got somebody else to teach them what they wanted to teach. And then he had a little extracurricular group for the small people who cared. But that was the only time it ever went even that much. In, because that's all, he, that's all he cared about. And he assumed if he did that. So, of course, Master's efforts... And Master did, though, and so did Swami. I mean, Swami did odd things. He imported opals. You know, it, very briefly he tried to uh, deal in gold. And that just really did not work out very well. And sometimes Master did things on the stock market and so on. But, but he imported opals from Australia for a while because Master loved opals and they were so beautiful. That, didn't, that fizzled out. But it was just, that was a, a little enterprise. But Master had a goat farm, you know, a goat dairy, and he bought a papaya orchard, and um, he made carrot juice, because he was also trying to build a self-sustaining community. So even, but even those enterprises were in the context of, we're trying to do this bigger thing, so let's make this happen. But when I thought about that, that also, what courage? You know, just what courage? This is, I will do this, and this will work, in this constant creativity. And so did Master. That's why he was always, you read, you get that master every day thing where he was and what he was doing. My gosh, the range of topics and the, the audiences that he spoke to, he was having to support his work. He was spreading the word, but he was also just spreading it in whatever way he could with tremendous creativity and the financial pressure helps you have to do that. 
So God sets it up that way. It would have been so simple for it to be different. So you have to say, well, he knows what he's doing. Sometimes you wish it were easier, but he knows what he's doing. Well, any comments or questions or thoughts? So what do you think the karma of, uh, you know, the people that, uh, uh, like, sued him and that kind of stuff, and then he had to go to court? What do you think that was all about? Well, you know, people have the good karma to be close to a master and the unfortunate karma of not knowing what they have. So on one hand, to even be close enough to sue him meant that you were involved enough to know that he was there. And the man, the man who really betrayed him above all, dear Ananda, Master said three more lifetimes he'll be done. So, I mean, that's the answer itself. It's like, it just, you have a lot of energy, as Swami said, when there's no sunlight coming through, you can't see any of the colors in the stained glass window, but if the sun is very bright, you see all the colors distinctly. And, and uh, about spiritual people with great flaws, Swami also said, you know, the subconscious mind has many chambers, he said, and there can be one aspect of you that's quite um, corrupted, but it might be the only aspect of you that's quite corrupted. You have to think that about Dhirananda that whatever it was that captured him, something grabbed him, but he was Master's childhood friend and enormously charismatic and brilliant and Master, he had tremendous loyalty for Master, so he had a, a corrupted spot that he fell into and acted out. You have to see it from God's point of view. Okay, that's our story. So we come together next week and conceivably one more after that. We went through only one or two. We, went, we started from 232 and we finished at 234. Do you have a calendar? How many more do we have before it's a... We have two more. Okay, two more before we take a long hiatus.